Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 20. Next week we'll go to Psalm 21, and then after that we will return to the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, we'll be pretty disappointed by that. Oh, the Psalms, and now to the Ecclesiastes. Oh, gosh. Ecclesiastes is good. So Tom, Psalm 20 today, Psalm 21 tomorrow. Or, sure, we could do 21 tomorrow. Psalm 21 next Sunday. So Psalm 20, beginning in verse 1. May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with a saving right, might excuse me, of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that... You may help us to receive your word with all humility. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and our Redeemer. Cause your word to bear fruit in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of God came to the judge Samuel and they were desirous of a king, which wasn't a bad request, it wasn't a bad desire, but they wanted to be, they wanted a king because they wanted it to be like the other nations. They wanted a king like other nations. And so God ultimately gave them what they wanted, and at the very end it led to disastrous consequences. The king and his son, they die in battle. The ark of God, which represented the presence of God going with people, was taken by the Philistines, their enemy, and Israel was defeated. The people, in their desire for a king, they failed to see the connection between God and his king and his people. And failure to see that led to these disastrous consequences. And so as we turn to Psalm chapter 20, what we see here is four concerns. It concerns the king, it concerns his God, and it concerns the king's people. But it also concerns salvation. So first, let's turn to the salvation of the king. 
So Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are considered to be royal psalms. They're having to do specifically with the kings of Israel. And encapsulated in verse 9 of Psalm 20, it says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when he call. May God answer us when we call. Here we see sort of the summary, summary request condensed in this one verse. God, save the king. Protect the king. Preserve the king. It's an invocation of blessing. Most likely, this psalm was used congregationally. The people of God would come together probably at the eve of battle with the king leading a procession, bringing offerings to the Lord, administered by the holy priest. And they would pray or sing aloud this psalm, concluding with, God, save the king. Save the king as he goes out to march against his enemies. We see something similar in 1 Samuel 7, verse 9. Right before battle, Samuel the judge took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So it's a prayer of blessing for the king. Then in verse 6, it takes kind of a turn. Prior to that, it says, May the Lord do this, may the Lord do this, may the Lord do this. And then it says in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Others trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. So most likely this section was speaking, was spoken by the priest. So this psalm essentially is a plea for God's favor. It begins with a plea for the Lord's protection. May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Unlike Saul, who did not have the protection of God. Why? Because he did not walk in the fear of the Lord, but transgressed the commandments of the Lord. And so God actually gave him up to death. And so this prayer is is opposite to that. It's like, no, God, protect the king. Preserve the life of the king. Do not let the king go from your hand, because the life of the king is is in the hands of God. And the language here in the Hebrews intended to communicate a request that God would place the king sort of in an elevated position. Let him stand above the rest. So even while he is in the midst of battle, let him be placed up, inaccessible, untouchable by his foes. So it's a prayer for the Lord's protection. It's also a prayer for the Lord's provision. May God send the king help from the sanctuary and give him support from Zion. Zion is representative of the city of Jerusalem, where the temple of God was, where the presence of God dwelt. It's intended to be the mobile pres- or the, the localized presence of God, and the ark of God is intended to be sort of the mobile presence of God. But Zion is also representative of the heavenly abode, 
where God is said to dwell. And so this particular prayer is that God would provide from heaven, that the king's support would come and rain down from the heavens, from the hand of God. John Piper has used the analogy of a wartime walkie-talkie, that when you're in the thick of battle, in the thick of war, you have the walkie-talkie to immediately call out for support, for aid, bring support, bring guidance. We need support. It's sort of how prayer works as well. And so the idea is that, that the presence of God would continue to go with the king even in the midst of battle and be so near the king so that the king only has to call for help and that God, that God would send aid. and provide exactly what he needed. It's a prayer also for the Lord's favor. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So may God receive your offerings. May God find them acceptable. That the Lord would assure his favor and his grace upon the king by his receiving the offerings brought by the king. But what makes an acceptable offering, right? Just because you bring an offering to the Lord doesn't necessarily make it acceptable. But what makes it an acceptable offering is loving obedience. That is when the king's heart is after the heart of God. It is when one is living out this loving obedience unto God, can he be assured that God will receive his offerings so that without this loving obedience, the best offerings in the world, a life of consistent tithing, a constant pattern of congregational attendance, even a life characterized by good works, would all be considered by God as rags dirtied with manure, if not done with a heart that is after God's. And this is why ultimately King Saul was rejected and lost his life. A person who prioritizes living to please man over living to please God, who picks and chooses which commands to follow and which commands of God to disregard, who ranks first in his own interest over God's, is a person that will never ever find favor with God. So this prayer, this psalm, expects that the king is walking rightly before the Lord. Only then can they have any kind of assurance that God will favor the king and bring about victory and save him. There's the prayer for the Lord's favor. It's also a prayer for the Lord's prosperity. That the Lord would be pleased to answer the desires of the king's heart. Proverbs Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The kind of king that the Lord loves to favor is a kind of king that has these verses inscribed upon his heart. He strategizes, he makes the plans, he readies the horses, he readies the men, but ultimately he knows and understands that the victory will come about by the hands of God. 
2 Samuel 23 speaks of the kind of king that God loves to favor. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So several pleas here made on behalf of the king. And What else do we learn from these pleas? In ancient times, ancient kings considered themselves to be sons of the gods. That if you're in that position of king over a nation, over a people, then that makes you a kind of son of God or a, sons, or a son of the gods. And this isn't completely foreign to Israelites or to the Hebrew. In Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is King David writing these words, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Later on we'll see that this points to a greater king, but these are words written by King David. And so even to the Israelites, they understood that even the kings were considered to be a kind of son of God. And so what we learn from this psalm, and even from Psalm chapter 2, is that God tethers himself to the life of the king. They are connected. And ancient kings would also make sacrifices to the gods to gain their favor. But what we read here in the Psalms is that the king did not see the favor of God as his right, but he saw the favor of God as a gift. That if he is going to be saved, that if he is going to be prospered, if he is going to be preserved, it is because God is gracious. They understood that salvation is not a right, but it is a gift. The Hebrew kings could appeal to sonship, but even sonship was a gift. So it's a plea for the salvation of the king. Second, let us consider the salvation of the king's people. Now this question might go, might have sort of obvious answers, but let's entertain for a moment. Why is there such an interest in the preservation and the protection of the king? Why make this plea? Why are the people so interested in the preservation and the prosperity of the king? Firstly, because the people love their king. The passage assumes that this king who makes offerings to the Lord is a king who walks with God who walks in the fear of the Lord, who has a heart that is after the heart of God. And that is the kind of king that the people want. And that is the kind of king that the people love. So they want the preservation of the king because they love the king and they love that the king is after the heart of God. But most importantly, why there's such an interest in the preservation and the protection of the king it's because the king's victory is also their victory. The prosperity and even the vitality of the nation is tied to the, proster- the prosperity and the vitality of the king. They are intimately connected. 
The defeat of one is the defeat of the other. The victory of one is the victory of the other. In the Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf enters the kingdom of King Theoden, immediately, and if you've seen the movies, there's, there's just this gloom. There's this depression. There's this sadness. Almost like the people, the citizens, are like living dead men. And they enter the king's court and they immediately see why. Because the king himself has been in sort of this psychological trance or this psychological curse and that even he himself is like a living dead king until the spell is broken. One commentator says that at the heart of Hebrew theology lay the conviction that God was involved in their historical experience. God tethers the life of the king not only to himself, but he also tethers the life of the king to the life of his citizens. The one represents the many, the many are represented in the one. So if he walks with the Lord, that leads to the nation's prosperity. But if he does not walk in the ways of the Lord, then it ultimately leads in the judgment of the nation. And if you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the history of kings and chronicles, then you'll see that that is the case. Because God is intimately involved in the historical experience of his people, especially in the life of his king and the king's people. So it was a great concern for the priesthood and the entire nation that the king walked in the fear of the Lord. But God not only takes interest in the king and in the king or the citizens of his people, but he also takes interest in the king for different reasons as well. He, he, that's because he favors his people. So God wants his people to prosper because he favors his people. Deuteronomy 32 speaks of this wonderful favor that God has for his people. Deuteronomy 32.10, it says that God found him in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. When, God, or when Moses was up on the mountain with God and he asked to see the glory of God, God said that he would make his goodness pass before him. And then shortly after, he declared his own name. He says that he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. From creation to the exodus to the establishment of the kingly office, we see this multi-threaded rope that is God that connects it all together. And among the many cords, the one, one of the stands, the strands that stands out among the many others is the grace and mercy of God. And the way in which we see the mercy of God so graciously dispensed, and so vividly dispensed, is through relationship. God establishes a relationship with Adam. God establishes a relationship with Abraham. God establishes a relationship with his nation, Israel. And in this way, he shows his favor. So God takes a great interest in the preservation of the king because he favors his people so much. Not only that, but God takes interest in the preservation of the king because of his own name. Because he ties his own name to the king. 
Several weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 18, and what we saw there towards the end of Psalm 18 was the subduing of the nations, which led ultimately to worship. That there are nations who are subdued because God works wonderfully through his people, and that even other nations, without fighting, pledge allegiance to the Israelite nations, and that others also then come to worship, that the king himself leads people into worship. And so that it becomes sort of a a witness, a testimony to the surrounding nations that God is with these people. The queen of Sheba heard of the God of Israel, heard of the wisdom of the king and came to see for herself and she witnessed for herself that God is with these people. It leads many others to say, who is like the Lord? And the answer is no one. But as a church, as a people of God today, as we consider the psalm and as we read it, and we see, hopefully, how the Israelites saw this psalm and appropriated in their worship. We stand today viewing it a little bit differently. Because the office of king established by God ultimately is intended to point to a greater king. And this is what this psalm also points us to as well. It points us to a much greater king greater than King David, greater than King Solomon, greater than any other king that has come before and will ever come after. So while Psalm 2, which we looked at a little bit earlier, yes, points to the king as being sort of a son of God, but Jesus himself also appropriated that very psalm as well. Speaking about him, that he is the greater king, that he is the son of God. That Jesus is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he has come down from heaven. And just as the prayer here is that the king would find favor in the sight of God, Jesus, the king, the son of God, had favor with God. When he rose from the baptismal waters, God thundered from the heavens so that all could hear that this is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that he always does the Father's will and that it is his food to do the Father's will. He says elsewhere in the Gospels that he always does what pleases the Father. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And God had given David a covenant, that is, that his sons after him will always sit on the throne. And Jesus, coming from the line of David, is the kind of king that the people of Israel desired and needed and the kind of king that we need and also have. But Jesus is not only king because he comes from the line of David, but Jesus is also king by virtue of who he is, namely that he is the eternal word who was there from the very beginning. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. 
Jesus is not only king by virtue of who he is, but he's also king by virtue of what he has done. When Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, he came also to wage his own warfare. He came into the world and he proclaims himself as king by healing diseases and restoring people's body to health. He proclaimed himself as king by controlling the elements to which even the disciples responded and said, Who is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. He proclaims himself as king by casting out demons out of people and the demons have no choice but to submit to his authority. He proclaims himself as king by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, the time to turn to the kingdom of heaven is here because the king has arrived. But he most vividly proclaims himself as king by dying on the cross. Shocking and even unbelievable to the Israelites Shocking to anyone else outside of Israel. Because what king would see their victory in their death? But this is exactly what Jesus saw, that his ultimate victory would come through his death on the cross. And there he would defeat sin and defeat death on behalf of his people. But as I said earlier, God tethers the life of the king to his people. So who are the people that are tethered to the life of the king who is Jesus? Who are these citizens? And those citizens are all those for whom Christ Jesus died. They are those who believe in Jesus as Savior, who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And in the same way that Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so now today the church continues to proclaim that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ lives in the church. Jesus Christ will one day come. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, now is the time to reconcile yourself to the son to pledge allegiance to the Son, to bow to the Son, to give your life to the Son, to love and believe in the Son. Lest you perish in the judgment and wrath of the King. Now is the time to reconcile yourself to the King. Now is the time to believe in him, and only then can you be tethered to the life of the king so that his victory over sin and death is also your victory over sin and death. Christ did not come to die for no man, and Christ did not come into the world to die to make only salvation possible, but, he, but Christ came into the world and died on the cross to make salvation a reality for all those who place their faith and trust upon Jesus. And those who believe, they have their salvation forever tethered to his deliverance. Embedded in Romans 8 is this golden chain of salvation 
which I know many of you are familiar with, this golden chain of salvation says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From before the foundations of the world, they are citizens that God has dispensed his favor on for reasons that we may never know or understand. That God has sent Jesus to die for. And they are part of this golden chain that will never be broken. It is a chain that tethers us to Christ no matter where we go, no matter what we do. That in this golden chain, our salvation is secured even until the day of our glorification for those who believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bolt cutters of suffering cannot cut through it. The edges of the hacksaw of sin and temptation are not sharp enough to cut it apart. It is an unbreakable chain. You are forever tethered to Christ the King. And God does this in part because He takes great interest in His people. So that if you're here and you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, for whatever reason that you may not ever understand and know, God has favored you to believe in His Son, to be a recipient of His grace, to receive His kindness, to receive eternal life. But also, in the gospel, we see that God has also taken a great interest in His own name. In 1 Peter 2.9 it tells us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are saved so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the glories of God. God favors us and saves us through Christ the King so we may continue to proclaim the glory of the King. So having considered the salvation of the King and the salvation of the King's people, let's conclude with living to please the God of the King. Living to please the God of the King. How do we live our lives in such a manner that we please the God of the King? And that is by walking in the victory that Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. It's applying that victory to our lives. Oftentimes there's this discrepancy between reality and our lives. The reality is that Jesus Christ has died for sin. But then our lives are not always consistent with that reality. Instead, we sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, walk as though defeated with our heads down and just accept defeat. You walk with your head down as a lamb led to the slaughter. You stand with a joylessness, the joylessness of a person who's incarcerated in the prison of the devil. 
you lazily drag your feet with the pessimism of Eeyore. You stumble again and again, intoxicated by sin. But listen to the reality of Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Then in verse 9 it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, there is freedom from sin in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin. Because Christ has severed the link of sin that was tethered to your life. So it is time for you to lift up your droopy head, to restore to yourself the joy of your salvation, to equip yourself with a holy optimism, to sober up by walking in the word of the Lord. The way in which we Live to please the King is by walking in the victory that's been accomplished for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is putting away the anger, putting away the impatience, putting away the lust, putting away the sloth, putting away the envy, putting away the jealousy, putting away the anger and the pride and the arrogance. You now have the ability through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to walk as one who is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The one who is alive in Christ shows the signs of life. They devour the word of God. They glue their knees to the floor in prayer. Now, I, I know that probably in some sense I'm oversimplifying things because Sin can be complicated, and battling sin can be incredibly complicated. And this is probably an aside, but when it comes to sin, oftentimes what we struggle with is dealing with the symptoms of sin, but not getting to the core issue. So, as an example, let's just say Rob. Rob is... Christian, he's a solid guy, loves the Lord, loves to serve the church. But Rob also has a tendency to get angry and impatient. Every time after service is over and it's time to pick up the instruments and pick up all the cables, he's part of that crew. And everybody's it's different people who's in charge of different things. But he oftentimes finds himself on the stage alone cleaning up by himself and sometimes even finding himself telling people how to clean things up. The others, who he thinks should be helping him, are out and they're engaging with people, they're having conversations, catching up, talking about the service. 
and he's upset the entire time. Now, he understands this is wrong of him, so he asks brothers and sisters to pray for him. He, recite, he memorizes scripture to help him to deal with those moments where he's tempted to, to be angry and upset with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And those are all good. Those are all helpful. But he's not dealing with the core issue of his heart because the core issue of his heart is that he does not love God's people in the same way that God loves them. And as long as he does not see God's people in the same light that God does and loves them the same way that God does, he will always struggle with impatience and angry and anger towards his brothers and sisters in Christ. And listen, there is victory, the cross of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you just need to know the right questions to ask. Listen, and you need help asking the right questions to see what's going on, please let me know. I can help you to figure out what those right questions are so we can figure out what is actually going on. But it is helpful to know, surely it is helpful to know that there is victory in Christ over every sin that you struggle with. That there is freedom in Christ. That you are no longer a slave to sin that you don't have to be defeated by sin because Christ the King has defeated sin. But when you do fail, there's always grace. The person who shows these signs of life, even in the struggle and turmoil of sin, I'm reminded of Captain America in the Marvel movies before he was super soldier Captain America, but this, this scrawny little dude who would get into fights and lose every battle, he would always get up and he what's the catchphrase? He'd always say, I could do this all day. Right? Sometimes the Christian life is like that. This is how we show the signs of life, that sometimes when we are defeated by sin, it's just a matter of getting up and just saying, I can do this all day. But as I said, there is mercy and there's grace and there's forgiveness for every sin in our lives. Richard Baxter, in his book, The Bruised Reed, he, he, he writes, What is the gospel itself but a merciful moderation in which Christ's obedience is esteemed ours and our sins laid upon him, wherein God, from being a judge, becomes our Father, pardoning our sins and accepting our obedience, though feeble and blemished. We are now brought to heaven under the covenant of grace by a way of love and mercy. And he continues and writes elsewhere, he says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Let that sink in. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Praise God for that. Because we so desperately need the mercy and the forgiveness of God. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Christ's mercy outpaces our sins. His grace outperforms our trespasses. Like runners in a marathon, uh, uh, the sins that so, so aggravate us, they can run harder then we can even get ahead of us, but the grace of God is always ahead 
of the sin. It's always there. What a merciful and gracious King that we have. That He was so lavishly give us His mercy and grace every single time we need it. Jesus Christ is the kind of King that were it up to us, we would never choose. And He is a kind of King that we certainly did not deserve. Yet God has given Him to us to defeat the powers that kept us enslaved and make us into His citizens and also give to us His victory. So then let us walk in the victory of Christ and let us also run towards His grace for it never, ever, ever runs out. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is more mercy in Christ in you than there is in us. Lord, and we sometimes have a hard time believing that. We have a tendency to believe that our, that our sins are greater than your mercy, that our sins outweigh your, your grace, but that isn't true. Lord, help us to believe what your word says. Help us to believe in your mercy. Help us to run to your grace. And in that, help us to find also the strength to continue to move forward. Walking in the victory purchased for us, for our great King Jesus Christ. We pray in our King's name. Amen.